السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين ما بعد so last week we finished Surah Al-Masad so I think what I would like to do is do like a short pop quiz because right? I think that's what we'll do now, inshallah, when we finish the surah. We'll briefly like recap and go over some of the points, and then, inshallah, we'll move on to the next one. So, Surah uh, Al-Masad, Quran, the 111th surah, is known by a number of names that we mentioned. Anyone tell me what those names are? One or two of those names? Masad, yeah. Tabat, right? Tabat, Yada, Bilahab, Yawatab, Surah Abu Lahab. These are some of the names. And as we said, it's one of the first surahs that we've come across anyway uh, in our, the way that we're going through the Qur'an and the tafsir of the Qur'an, in which the scholars all unanimously agreed as to where it was revealed, as to whether it's a Madin in Makki surah. And we said that it's a Makki surah, right? And because of the context and the incident that it's referring to. And we mentioned also the cause of its revelation um, and the incident of Abu Lahab. And we spoke at some length about who Abu Lahab is and this character, whose name is very familiar to us, and also his wife, Ummu Jameel, who is also mentioned in this surah. So Allah Azza wa Jal begins with, Tabbat yada abi lahabin wa tab. And we're not going to go through like every single point that we mentioned in the surah. That's like, that was the whole point of going through it in detail. But, but the, the interesting, or one of the interesting points from this verse is the repetition of tab. Right? And we said that the scholars have three approaches in terms of why there's repetition? Why the word tab is repeated twice? What was the first, the first of those three positions? That both of them refer to dua. The first is dua and the second is dua. The second position is? Uh, no, other way around. That the first is dua and the second is esteemed, that Allah is answering the dua. And the third position is that both of them are? Statements, right? And you find, uh, like we said in the translations, the various translations of this surah, you'll find that translators have taken all three of those approaches in the translations of this surah of the Quran. And then Allah Azza wa Jalla, verse number two: "Ma aghna anhu ma luhu wa ma kasab." Didn't benefit him, nor did it profit him. Right? And we said that the ma, according to some scholars of tafsir, is ma nafia. It is a ma of negation. Didn't benefit him. Another said that, no, it's not a ma of negation. It is a ma which refers to a question. Meaning Allah is questioning, it's a rhetorical question. And what did it benefit him? What he gathered and his wealth and so on and so forth. And we mentioned that some of the scholars said that the mal, his wealth, refers to his actual physical wealth. And ma kasab, what he earned, refers to his children, his offspring, his people that he used to boast about that would come to his aid. Then Allah Azza wa Jalla in verse number three says, "Sayasla naran lahab." He will enter into a fire full of flame, burn in a fire full of flame. And the scene in Sayasla, we said, has a dual meaning in the Arabic language. The first is that it can refer to a future event, and the second is that it's a promise, lilwaid. Right? It's a promise from Allah Azza wa Jalla that He will surely be punished in this way. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes the fire in this surah with the same description 
that is used in Abu Lahab's name, or rather in his technonym, right? See, I didn't need to ask that time. Technonym, right? It's something which he, because it's called Abu Lahab, so he will go into a fire full of flame. And then Allah Azza wa moves on into the last two verses, and he speaks about the wife of Abu Lahab, right? the fire would carry her. And we said that the scholars of Tafsir gave four interpretations as to why Allah Azza wa describes her in that way, that she was a firewood carrier. What's the first interpretation, the most famous? That she would carry splinters of wood, thorns, and she would throw them in the path of the Prophet right? That's the most common description or the most common uh, explanation for that description. The second is... that she would degrade the Prophet ﷺ, and especially with poverty. She would say that he is poor, that he doesn't have anything, that he's, you know, he's destitute, and so on. Number three, the third interpretation, that it refers to her spreading rumors. And the rumors are the ones that Allah alludes to in the Qur'an in multiple places. He's a magician, he's a poet, he's crazy, so on and so forth. He's a liar. All of that's like repeated many times in the Quran. And the fourth interpretation that it refers it's very generic, refers to all of her sins. Right? And so we have different approaches from the scholars of Tafsir in terms of how broad and generic they make that the, the that, that word or that description fit her, or that it's something which is extremely Specific, right? It relates to a specific incident and a specific issue in the life of this woman and in relation to what she did to the Prophet. And then Allah says, and by the way, Ibn Kathir has an interesting approach, right? When in the last verse as well, uh, what does Ibn Kathir say that it means? Majority of scholars of tafsir they said what? That just as Abu Lahab is being punished, likewise. His wife will be punished in the fire of hell. But what did Ibn Kathir rahimahullah say that it refers to? He said that it refers to her increasing in the punishment of Abu Lahab. So just as she used to help him in this life, spread his evil and do his haram and whatever else, likewise on Yawm Al-Qiyamah, she, or in the fire of hell rather, she will also be helping in his punishment. She will be adding wood and fire and fuel to burn him whilst she is also being burned in the fire of hell. And this is, as we said, something which Ibn Kathir rahimahullah mentioned in his tafsir. And then Allah concludes the surah Fijidiha Hablum Mim Masad. And we said that the scholars differed in terms of what it was. Is this like a physical necklace that you used to wear? And some of them said no, it refers to a, a rope of fire that Allah will use to punish her in, uh, in the next life. And, and you know, we mentioned the different statements of the scholars concerning that. Any questions concerning Do we have anything online concerning that? There was no online. <coughs> there was no online. Okay. So, we come on to Surah number 110. Right? Surah Al-Nasr. A'udhu billahi minash shaytanir rajeem. Bismillahir rahmanir rahim. Iza jaa nasrullahi wal-fatih. وَرَأَيْتَ النَّاسَ يَدْخُلُونَ فِي دِينِ اللَّهِ أَفْوَاجًا فَسَبِّحْ بِحَمْدِ رَبِّكَ وَاسْتَغْفِرْهِ إِنَّهُ كَانَ تَوَّابًا Allah Azza wa says, and when the 
aid and the help of Allah comes and the conquest. And you see the people enter into the religion of Allah in droves, in crowds. Then glorify or celebrate the praises of your Lord and seek his forgiveness. For indeed he is the one who often accepts repentance. This is, as we know, one of the, like, the shortest surahs of the Qur'an. Right? It's three verses. And when it comes to the shortest surahs of the Qur'an, there are three surahs that fit that description in terms of number of verses. The first is this one, obviously, Surah Al-Nasr. The second is Surah Al-Asr. And the third is Surah Al-Kawthar. Right? All three of them, in terms of number of verses, fit that description that they're the shortest surahs of the Qur'an. The shortest surah in terms of number of words is Surah Al-Kawthar, which is why it's often referred to, you know, if someone asks the generic question, what's the shortest surah of the Qur'an, the most likely response that you'll get is Surah Al-Kawthar, right? Because it is shortest in terms of number of verses, but also in number of words. Whereas Surah Al-Nasr and Surah Al-Asr are slightly longer. But in terms of the shortest surahs of the Qur'an, they are the ones that have three verses only, and there are three of them as well. And this is one of them, Surah Al-Nasr. This is a surah that will, as we'll see, it's a surah that was revealed towards the very end of the life of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi And it's a significant surah because in many ways it relates to the fact, as we will see in, in some or a number of the narrations that are mentioned concerning this surah, relates to the fact that the Prophet sallallahu alaihi his time upon earth is coming to an end, right? his mission is more or less at its end. He's completing his message and he's conveying that message. And now Allah is preparing him for the next stage, which is his passing from this life and his meeting with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So it is a surah that speaks about, in many ways, and we'll see this like when we come even through the, the different names that this surah is known by in the books of tafsir. One of those names speaks about the farewell. One of the names of this surah is the surah of farewell. But that's a very, like, it's a very, and we'll come on to the statement, you know, I think we're, we're all familiar with the famous statement on the incident of Ibn Abbas, radiallahu anhuma, when he was in the council of Umar, radiallahu anhu. But what it shows is that it's a very um, subtle reference to the death of the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. It's not something which was openly known, right? And it's not something which the majority of the companions, or many of the companions, understood. It's a very fine point to be taken from this surah. And it's very similar in that regard to the statement that the Prophet ﷺ made in his final illness when he came out to one of the final occasions, he came out to the companions and he spoke to them. And he said to them that indeed a servant of Allah was given a choice between life in this world or between going and meeting his Lord. So he chose the meeting with his Lord. And Abu Bakr began to cry. So the other companions, not understanding the significance of this statement, they said, oh, Abu Bakr, why are you crying? And Abu Bakr replied and he said, because the Prophet ﷺ is referring to himself. He is the servant that has given the choice. He is the servant who has made the choice and he has chosen his Lord, meaning that he will soon leave us. Right? And that's a very subtle understanding. Right? It's a very subtle understanding of of, um, of, of the statement of the Prophet So likewise, this surah, Allah Azza wa Jal is telling, and like, by the way, in the Quran, there are a number of verses in which Allah Azza wa Jal explicitly says that the Prophet will pass away. Right? It's nothing new, it's nothing unheard of. Right? And there are more explicit verses than Surah Al-Nasr 
that speak about the death of the Prophet ﷺ. For example, Surah Ali Imran, وَمَا مُحَمَّدٌ إِلَّا رَسُولٌ قَدْ خَلَتْ مِنْ قَبْلِهِ الرُّسُلُ أَفَإِمْ مَاتَ أَوْ قُتِلًا قَلَبْتُمْ عَلَىٰ أَعْقَابِكُمْ Very explicit. Muhammad ﷺ is but a messenger. And many messengers before him have passed away. So if he dies or he is killed, will you then turn away on your heels? Will you then flee and turn away from this religion? Very explicit. Much more explicit than Surah Al-Nasr. Another example is, إِنَّكَ مَيِّتٌ وَإِنَّهُمْ مَيِّتُونَ ثُمَّ إِنَّكُمْ يَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةِ عِنْدَ رَبِّكُمْ تَخْتَصِيمُونَ Surely you will die and they will die. And then all of you will stand before your Lord and you will debate and argue with one another. Right? Very explicit verse. You will die, they will die. So there are verses of the Quran that speak about this. Right? It's something which is, but the companions of the Prophet ﷺ, because of their love for the Prophet ﷺ, because they couldn't imagine a life without him, they couldn't imagine a time would come and he wouldn't be there guiding them, leading them. It's not something which they thought was likely to happen. So when Allah gives the Prophet ﷺ this surah, he reveals this surah, some of the companions understood that this is what it refers to, right? And that incident of Umar and Ibn Abbas that we'll, we'll mention is an indication that there were companions who understood. Like Umar and he understood what this means. And you have similar statements from Ibn Abbas and Ibn Mas'ud that they understood that that is what the message of, surah, of this surah, Surah Al-Nasr was. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't mention explicitly. It's not something which is explicit. Something which is implicit, implicit. It's implied in the surah, but it's not mentioned openly. There are other passages of the Quran that are far more straightforward, far more blunt, far more explicit in terms of speaking about the death of the Prophet But number two, its significance also, and perhaps more importantly, is the way in which Allah deals with the subject matter. And Allah deals with the subject matter in a way that is actually reflected in the sunnah. And that is that the subject matter is reflected in a way of what is your preparation or how to prepare for death. So the issue is not he's going to die sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. The issue for the Prophet sallallahu himself is how to prepare for that meeting with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's what the last verse is about. Making tasbih, praising Allah, asking Allah for forgiveness and so on and so forth preparing for the meeting with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's reflected in the sunnah. It's reflected in the statements of the Prophet and it's reflected in his illness and his, and his death, alayhi salatu wasalam. It's reflected in the statement of the Prophet For example, you have the hadith of where the, the Prophet uh, I think it's the one that he's given the khutbah, and a Bedouin man enters into the masjid, and he says, O Messenger of Allah, Mata sa'a, when will the hour strike? And the Prophet ﷺ continues, he's giving a sermon, he's giving the khutbah. So the man sits down. And then after the Prophet ﷺ finishes, he asks, where is the sail, where is the questioner? So the man stands up and he repeats his question. When is the hour, O Messenger of Allah? And the Prophet ﷺ said, But rather the question is, what have you prepared for it? Right? So the question is, what is your preparation for death? And it's as if Allah is giving that same message in this surah. Yes, you will die and you will pass. How do you prepare for that meeting before, with Allah Azza wa Jalla and standing before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? And then the Prophet ﷺ does prepare for it. 
because we know in his final illness, especially towards the very end, when he's in the house of Aisha, radiallahu anha, and it's his final day or two, the Prophet ﷺ wants the miswak, he wants his mouth to be cleaned, he wants to prepare himself for when he actually meets Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this surah is an indication, and by the way, this surah was revealed, as we will see, at the conquest of Mecca. Which year was the conquest of Mecca? What was the question? Which year was the conquest of Mecca? The Hijri, not the 10th. Eighth. The eighth year of the Hijrah. And the Prophet ﷺ died in which year? No, no. Yeah. Yeah, you guys are getting all your like dates mixed up. Right. So he dies, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, more or less two years after the conquest of Mecca. Right? Give or take. So the Prophet ﷺ is being told two years before at the conquest of Mecca, that your message is more or less complete. Right? Your time is coming to an end. And he's told to prepare himself. And we'll, we'll, we'll mention this, the hadith of Aisha radiallahu anha, of how the Prophet used this verse, the last verse of Surah Al-Nasr, and he applied it in his salah, and so on and so forth. All of this, inshallah, will come across. So it's a surah that speaks about this, um, this very important topic and this very important issue. Uh, the names of this surah, it is, its most famous name is obviously Surah Al-Nasr. And Al-Nasr means help, victory, aid, right? one of them. And this is the name that's given to it by most of the scholars of tafsir. It's one that you'll find uh, mentioned by, for example, Abdullah ibn al-Mubarak, rahimahullah, the famous imam, al-imam al-Tabari, ibn Hazm, al-Baghawi, uh, ibn al-Jawzi, uh, Ibn Atiyah, Ibn Hajar, rahimahumullah, many of the scholars of tafsir. It is the, perhaps the most famous name of the surah, the one that is most commonly used amongst the scholars of tafsir. They called it Surah Al-Nasr. The second name that is mentioned for this surah, and it's a name that's, uh, or rather the style of naming is something that we've come across many times, and that is that it is the first verse. Right? And that's very common, right? In the books of tafsir, often they say tafsir surah, and then they just say the whole first verse. So, إِذَا جَاءَ نَصْرُ اللَّهِ وَالْفَتْحِ Surah, إِذَا جَاءَ نَصْرُ اللَّهِ وَالْفَتْحِ And this is mentioned by Imam al-Bukhari, rahimahullah, in his Sahih, Imam al-Nasai, in his book of Hadith, Abdul Razak al-San'ani, and also Ibn Hajj, rahimahullah, refers to this Surah by this name also. Right? So, when they come to this Surah, they just say, Tafsir, Surah, إِذَا جَاءَ نَصْرُ اللَّهِ وَالْفَتْحِ And they mention the whole verse. Imam al-Qurtubi, rahimahullah ta'ala, he says that it's also known as Surah Al-Tawdi'ah. Tawdi'ah means farewell. The farewell surah. And in his tafsir, he mentions a narration of Abdullah bin Mas'ud, the statement of Abdullah bin Mas'ud, radiyallahu anh, that he called this surah, Surah Al-Tawdi'ah. The surah, the farewell surah. And he said, because in it, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa was told that his time was coming to an end. Right? So he called it the farewell surah. Ibn Mas'ud, radiyallahu anh. Right? Imam Al-Qurtubi mentions that in his tafsir. Al-Alusi in his tafsir, he says that it is also known as Surah Ida Ja'a. Right, so not the whole verse, just the first two words. Ida Ja'a. And he says, and this is mentioned, um, <coughs> he, it's mentioned in an authentic narration, Abdullah bin Mas'ud, uh, rather Abdullah bin Abbas, radiallahu anhumah said, we were with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam when Surah Ida Ja'a was revealed. And that's how he called it. Surah 
إِذَا جَاءَ It is also known as Suratul Fath, Suratul Fath, right? Which is the end of the first verse. So we have Suratul Nasr, which means victory. Al Fath means conquest, right? Or opening. Suratul Fath, and this is what Imam Tirmidhi, rahimahullah, calls it in his collection of hadith in his Jami' Tirmidhi. He calls it Surat Al Fath, right? And there is a, um, you know, like some of the scholars said that the Fath, and we'll come on to this later, the majority of the scholars said that the conquest in the surah refers to what? When the victory of Allah comes and the conquest. What is the conquest that Allah is referring to? Yeah, the conquest of Mecca, right? That's the opinion of the majority of the scholars of tafsir. But Imam al-Tirmidhi says, no, it's called Surah al-Fath, and then he mentions as his verse, as an, uh, as, as, Evidence for this, the verse in Surah Al-Fatih, right? Surah Al-Fatih, which is the one in the twenty. Before we get confused, the one in the twenty-six juz, right? Inna We have given to you a clear manifest conquest, victory. What is that Fatih referring to? Hudaybiyah. So some of the scholars said that Allah Azza wa in this Surah is referring to Hudaybiyah as well, right? That's the Victory that Allah Azza wa Jal is referring to, and Allah Subhanahu wa Taala knows best. So that's another name, Surah Al-Fath. So how many do we have so far? Five. We have Nasr. Ida Jaa Nasrullahi wal Fath. Tawdi' Ida Jaa and Fath. Right, that's five. Number six and the final one is Surah Al-Din. Surah Al-Din. وَرَأَيْتَ النَّاسَ يَدْخُلُونَ فِي دين الله right surah al-din and this is mentioned by ahmed ibn ibrahim al-thaqafi rahimahullah who was one of the scholars of andalus of spain who died in the year seven uh, seven hundred and eight of the hijra he has a number of or two or three books on the quran and tafsir of the quran and so on he called it surah al-din right and he's the only one that i came across that referred to it with that name surah al-din allah knows best so anyway those are six names that are mentioned in the various books of quran it is a surah of three verses, as we mentioned, and it is also a Madani surah bilijma'. By consensus of the scholars, it is a Madani surah. Right? So, like, like we said, right? surah Faraq, surah Nas, surah Ikhlas, the scholars differ. Is it Madani, is it Makki, and both opinions are represented. Some scholars said this, some scholars said that. Surah Al-Masad, we said, by consensus is a Makki surah. And this surah by consensus is a Madani surah. Whether you consider it being referred to Hudaybiyah or, or you know, conquest of Mecca, whatever it is, a Madani surah. Ibn Kathir, rahimahullah, and Imam al-Qurtubi, rahimahullah, and others, they mentioned that it is a Madani surah, and there is no difference of opinion in this. In the hadith of, uh, in the Muslim of Imam Ahmad, rahimahullah, in the hadith of Abdullah ibn Abbas, he said that when this surah was revealed, the Prophet knew that his time was coming to an end. So he mentions this as a narration. That when the Prophet heard this surah, he knew that his time was coming to an end. There is a narration that Shaykh al-Bani says is authentic, and I think it's in Ad-Darimi. And that is similar to this, that when the Prophet the surah was revealed to him, he knew that his time was coming to an end. 
And you know the famous incident of Fatima radiallahu anha, which most of the scholars attribute to his final illness, his final illness, where, and it's possible that, that this incident is still referring to that, that Fatima radiallahu anha came to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam in his final illness, and the Prophet spoke to her privately. Right? He spoke to her quietly. Aisha radiallahu anha was there, but she says, he spoke to her quietly. I couldn't hear what, what, what he said. He spoke to her and she cried. And then he spoke to her and she smiled. And then she left. Right? And then later on, Aisha radiallahu anha would ask after the death of the Prophet what did he say to you? And she replies at the beginning, he told me that he was soon to pass away. So I cried. And then he said to me that the first person for my family to come and meet me will be you. So it made me smile. Right? There is a narration in Adarimi, and I think it's also a hadith of Ibn Abbas عنهumah, that he puts that incident in context of the revelation of the surah. That the Prophet ﷺ, the surah was revealed, and so therefore he understood that his time, his ending was close by, and then he, and then he mentions that, that incident with Fatima radiallahu anha. So the point of this being that the Prophet ﷺ knew that his ending or his time was coming to an end. And what seems to have started all of this and where this surah is revealed is the conquest of Mecca. Right? The conquest of Mecca is what makes this, this whole, if you like, series of events that will eventually culminate with the death of the Prophet ﷺ. What starts all of this is the conquest of Mecca. Or you can probably even say the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, which took place in the 60th of the Hijrah. And I just want to briefly go over the incident of the conquest of Mecca in relation to this surah, because a lot of this surah is relating to that conquest, and it's something which Allah Azza wa mentions, and you know, according to the majority of the scholars of tafsir, it's the conquest that Allah is referring to in this surah. So in the 60th of the Hijrah, we know that the, we had the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. And you know, like we're not going to go through the whole uh, Treaty of Hudaybiyah, and even the whole conquest of Mecca. Sheikh Yasser, like in his seerah, I think he... I think each of those incidents is five or six lectures, right? He goes into a great amount of detail. But just to summarize that, in the 60th of the Hijrah, we have the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. And part of the Treaty of Hudaybiyah is that they agree a 10-year truce between the Muslims and Quraysh, no fighting, and that the people will be left in peace. No one will attack anyone, no Muslim will be injured or hurt. And they put, obviously, the conditions that they had within that treaty, as we know most of them, were in the favor of Quraysh, and hardly any of them were in the favor of the Muslims. However, one condition that, that in which they had parity, in which they had equality, was that anyone who wants to take the side of Quraysh in this contract, in this treaty, is free to do so. And anyone who wants to take the side of the Muslims, of the Prophet ﷺ, in this treaty, is free to do so. So yes, primarily the contract, the treaty, is between the Muslims and Quraysh. But if other tribes want to come in, on the side of one or another and be part of the treaty, then that's something which we will allow for both sides. And that's what happened. On the side of, uh, of the Quraysh, you have a tribe called Banu Bakr. Banu Bakr. And on the side of the Muslims of the Prophet ﷺ, you have a tribe called Banu Khuza'a. Banu Khuza'a. And these are two very old tribes amongst the Arabs. Right? They go back hundreds of years and so on. Khuza'a took the position or the, the, the side of the Muslims and the Prophet ﷺ because Khuza'a and Banu Hashim, which is the clan of the Prophet ﷺ within Quraysh, they have history. They go back many centuries. So they have history. 
So Khuza'a took the side of the Muslims and Banu Bakr took the side of the Quraysh. Now Banu Bakr and Banu Khuza'a have enmity between them that is old. They have bad blood that has been ongoing for generations. Just like before the Muslims came and the Prophet came to Medina, the Aus and the Khazraj were constantly in civil war and strife. Right? Even though they're related to one another and they're part of Medinan tribes, but those two massive tribes were warring against one another and they constantly had civil strife and war. Likewise, Banu Khuza' and Banu Bakr for many generations had the same issue. Bad blood, problems, so on. And both of these tribes live on the outskirts of Mecca. So Quraysh is, is, is you know, the, the, Mecca is the stronghold of Quraysh. But they're not too far from Mecca. They're on the outskirts of Mecca. Khuza'a and Banu Bakr. So one tribe takes the side of the Prophet ﷺ, the other one takes the side of. So what that actually essentially means what? It means that even if Quraysh attack Banu Khuza'a or the Muslims attack Banu Bakr, then the treaty is null and void. So it's not just about them too, it's about the people that have taken their sides as well. They have the same treaty applied to them. So because of the bad blood between the two of these tribes, Banu Bakr, a group of them, they decided, a group of people from Banu Bakr, not all of them, but a group of them, they decided that they wanted to attack Banu Khuza'a. Not because of the treaty or anything else, just because of the bad blood, they saw an opportunity and they wanted to attack these people who are their age-old enemies, right? For many years, many generations. And Banu Khuza'a had a watering hole, had an area that they would take their water, draw their water from, called Al-Watir. And it's outside of Mecca, just on the outskirts of Mecca. So Banu, Banu Bakr decided, a group of those men, decided that they would go and they would attack them at night, whilst they were asleep. And as you know, in those days, you know, once like the sun sets, everyone's in bed. You don't have this like nightlife, no one's awake, there's no electricity, you don't, you don't spend the night hours away, no one's a night owl in those days. Everyone's asleep, the sun sets, you go to bed. So they were going to attack them in this area where their watering hole is during the night to massacre them. And the problem occurs now where a group of Quraysh agreed to help them. From them is Safwan ibn Umayyah, from them is Ikrimah, the son of Abu Jahl, from them is Suhail ibn Amr, Right, those famous names that later on when the Prophet ﷺ would come for the conquest of Mecca and he would say everyone is safe except these handful of individuals. These people, even if they're in the Kaaba clinging onto its cloth, you kill them. Right? Some of the scholars said this is why. Because they were the perpetrators from Quraysh who broke the pact. Right? They were guilty. So they supplied not only weaponry to Banu Bakr for their attack, but they also took part in the attack. And they went at night and they started to kill they went there with the intention of massacre. For you know, some reason, uh, Banu Khuza'a seemed to have got wind of the attack, or they found out, or some of their people found out, and they were able to kill all of them. But even so, they killed 20 of them, 20 people. And if you can imagine, right, a clan in those days, and even now, is a family. Right? So if you look at like, you know, a family, parents, children, cousins, relatives, 20 people from one family dying in a single night is like a tragedy. It's a big issue. So 20 people were massacred. To the extent, and this is how, how evil they were, one of those people from Banu Khuza'a was escaping from the attack and he ran until he came to the Haram of Mecca and he entered into the Kaaba. And he said to them, when he entered into the Kaaba, he said to them, Ilahak, Ilahak, inna al-haram. 
beware of Allah, beware of Allah, we have not entered into the haram. Because we know that the Arabs, despite their kufr and their paganism and their adultery and everything else, when it came to the haram, they would honor and revere and respect the haram. Right? They understood its sanctity. So he sought refuge in the haram. And it said that the man who started the attack from Banu Bakr, his name was a man, uh, a name, a man by the name of Nawfal. Nawfal ibn Muawiyah. Nawfal said to him, when he said the statement that I've come to seek refuge in the Kaaba, he said, there is no God for you today. There is no God that will help you today. And he went and he killed him. So they massacred 20 people to that extent that even the Haram didn't offer refuge to them. So after this happened, one of the leaders of Khuza'a, and remember Khuza'a, according to a number of the scholars of Tafsir, uh, rather history, at this time they say that the majority of Khuza'a was not Muslim. They were from amongst them Muslims, but the majority of this tribe was not a Muslim tribe. They came into the pack because of their relationship with the tribe of the Prophet ﷺ, his clan, and because of the years of history that they have and so on. But these are, these are not people who have accepted Islam. Not people who are Muslim. But their leader, one of their leaders, one of their chiefs, a man by the name of Amr ibn Salim al-Khuzai, after the morning, after the attack, he left Mecca and he went to Medina. And he traveled and he traveled and he arrived in Medina. And he came into Medina and he found that the Prophet ﷺ was in the masjid, sitting amongst the companions. And he came into him. He came upon him, like he's not resting, he's not going here, there. he comes straight into the masjid. And he starts to speak to the Prophet ﷺ in poetry. Right? Because this is a big issue. And the chiefs of Quraysh, you know, this man, or rather the chief of Khuza'a, this man, he wants to impress upon the Prophet ﷺ the seriousness of what's just happened. Right? This is a massacre that just took place, unprovoked, no reason. And so he comes in and starts to narrate poetry. And he says, La humma inni nashidun muhammada, hilfa abina wa abihil atlada, qad kuntum muldan wa kunna walida, thumma taslamna falam nanza' yada, fansur hadaqallahu nasran a'tada, wad'u ibadallahi ya'tu madada, fihim rasulullahi qad tajarrada, إن سيم خصفا وجهه تربدا في فيلق كالبحر يجري مزبدا إن قريشا أخلفوك الموعدا ونقضوا ميثاقك المؤكدا وجعلوا لي في كداء رصدا وزعموا أن لست أدو أحدا وهم أذلوا وأقل عددا هم بيتون بالوتير هجدا وقتلونا ركعا مسجدا and you can imagine like that statement, the Prophet is sitting there listening to this. This man just comes in, the companions are sitting there, and he starts to spat off this poetry. And he begins and he says, La humma, Allahumma, I ask you by Allah, calling out to you, O Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And then he says to him that we have a pact that isn't just between me and you, but it goes back for generations. Generations, it goes back to the, the pact that we have between our two tribes. And... We agreed with you in the treaty that you made with Quraysh. That we're not going to have any issues with these people. But now I've come to you to ask you by Allah that you come and aid me in this issue that we have. And that you call the ibadullah, the, the slaves of Allah with you, the people that you have, to come to our aid also. Because now the messenger of Allah is free of any blame. Meaning that the Prophet ﷺ is no longer blameworthy for breaking the treaty they've already broken it. Right? And then he says, because what I am about to tell you, you will not be happy with. 
You can't be pleased with it. You can't just sit back and take it. It's not something which you can just accept. But rather, it will make you come out in an army like a sea, like an ocean. You will have to come and attack them. For indeed, Quraysh have broken their promise. And they have broken the treaty that you made with them, the pact that you made with them. And then he said, and they claimed that I won't call, I, I won't call upon anyone. Right? Meaning, some of the scholars said that it refers to that man who went into the haram and he called upon Allah and they didn't give him refuge. And others said that it refers to them, Khuza'a, not having the audacity to go and ask the Prophet for help or that the Muslims wouldn't want to upset the treaty that they have, the fragile peace, and that they wouldn't come to the aid of Khuza'a. So he says that they claim that I can't come and help you. But they are less in number and humbler than what you believe them to be. Indeed, they came last night to the area of Al-Watir and they attacked us and they killed us even though we were bowing and prostrating. Meaning that even though some of our people went to the Haram and sought refuge in worship, they still came and they massacred us. So the Prophet ﷺ heard this. And he listened to this and then he replied and he said, قَدْ نُسِرْتَ يَا عَمَرْ ibn Salim, O Amr, I will help you. And then Amr leaves. And then another delegation from Khuza'a comes. And they come and they tell the Prophet ﷺ in detail, this is what took place last night. This is what happened. This is how they attacked. And this is who played a part. And this is what Quraysh did in this whole issue. What's interesting is that once this happens, Abu Sufyan leaves Mecca and he comes to Medina. Abu Sufyan by himself comes as a peace envoy to Medina. So he leaves Mecca and he travels. Because the attack that's made, even the Quraysh, you know, the, the, the men from Quraysh who took part in the attack were people who were foolish. They didn't understand that the, the, huh? yeah, the repercussions, they didn't understand that the scenario, that the whole situation, the dynamics of the whole situation had changed. It's not the same now. This is no longer Badr where the Muslims are only 300, right? And the non-Muslims and the Quraysh are in their thousands. Now the tables have turned. Now the Muslims are 10,000 in number. So when the Treaty of Hudaybiyah takes place, it's 1,400. And the Quraysh don't know the exact numbers, but they know that the Muslims in those two years have increased, like multiplied in number. Right? There's so many of them now. They understand that. But only the smart ones, the intelligent, the wise leaders of Mecca understand, like Abu Sufyan. So when Abu Sufyan realizes, oh, oh this wasn't just like an attack, this wasn't just something small, the Muslims, this will provoke them. And now that Khuza'a have gone and asked the Prophet ﷺ for help, they won't be able, he won't be able to say no. And we're in trouble now. We're the ones in trouble. So Abu Sufyan leaves and he goes to Medina. And he enters into the house of his daughter, radiallahu anha, Ummu Habiba, who as we know is one of the wives of the Prophet ﷺ. And that's where you get the famous incident where he comes into the house and he wants to sit on a mat. And what, she, what does she do? She pulls it away. So he says to her, am I too good for the mat or is the mat too good for me? Right? That's what he says to her. And she replies and she says, rather this is the mat of the Prophet And you're a disbeliever. I wouldn't let you sit on the mat of the Prophet Right? And he says to her, wow, things have changed. Right? So this is Abu Sufyan. So Abu Sufyan then goes to the Prophet The Prophet refuses to speak to him. Refuses to speak to him. Doesn't say anything to him. Goes to the Prophet and he wants to speak to him. So then, the, then he goes to Abu Bakr radiallahu And Abu Bakr refuses to entertain him. Listens to him and he says, I'm not going to speak on your behalf of the Prophet. I'm not going to intercede for you. So he goes to Umar radiallahu 
And Umar, as you can imagine, doesn't only refuse. He says, if, the, if, I, like, if there was only like I had even the smallest implement that I could use to fight you, I would still fight you. Like, forget about speaking. You know, I would, like, even if I had nothing left in this world except like a stick or a thorn, I would still come and fight you. So then he goes to Ali, radiallahu Abu Bakr said no. Umar said no. He goes to Ali, radiallahu an, with his wife Fatima, radiallahu anha. He goes into their house and he speaks to them. And he says to Ali, Ali, me and you, we're relatives. We're related. We're close in family, in blood, in relation. And I've come to you on this urgent matter. And I want you to intercede with the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Ali, radiallahu an, is more, you know, polite in his conversation, in his manner. And, but he says to him, I don't think that I can speak to the Prophet. The Prophet has made up his mind. And it's not something which is open for discussion. So then he says to him, isn't there anyone who will intercede for me? Right? And then he says to Fatima, what about you, O daughter of Muhammad? Why won't you intercede? And she says the same thing. It's not something which I think that my father will listen to or entertain from me. So then he says to Abu Ali, well, give me a suggestion and you suggest something. So Ali says to him, the only thing that I can suggest is you go in front of the people in the masjid and ask, is there anyone willing to help me? Ask, maybe you'll find someone. He says, do you think I'll find someone? He says, no, I don't think so. But you can try. No harm in trying. So that's what he does. The narration says, Abu Sufyan goes into the masjid and he says, oh people, I've come, who will give me protection? Meaning, who will protect me, take me under their, you know, like their, their custodianship, then intercede for me with the Prophet And no one responded. And Ali said to him, if no one responds, then you should go back home. No point staying in Medina. You have no protection. You have no safe passage. Nothing. It's better for you to go back to, to uh, Mecca. So Abu Sufyan leaves and he goes back to Mecca. And he understands that this is a big issue. So the Prophet ﷺ prepares the army and the companions and they all leave. Right? And this is where you have the incident of Hatib. Hatib who you know, wrote the letter to Mecca and he wanted to tell the, the Quraysh of what the plans of the Prophet ﷺ were. And as we know, that letter doesn't reach Mecca. The Prophet ﷺ is told of it and he brings it back and he questions Hatib and so on and so forth. That, that's like a famous incident. But that's also in the context of the story of the conquest of Mecca. The Quraysh are unaware. They don't know what's going on. Right? But the Prophet ﷺ now moves his army of 10,000 Muslims and they make their way towards Mecca. And they settle on the outskirts of Mecca some miles away and they stop the army there. And that's where the Prophet ﷺ settles and that's where he's waiting. And Abbas radiallahu an, who is one of the, you know, obviously the uncle of the Prophet ﷺ, but also one of the Muslims, the companions in that army, he says that I feared that if the Muslims were to enter into Mecca in this way, they would destroy the city. Right? They would like, you know, no one would be, if, if the Meccans opposed us, if Quraysh stand up and oppose us, they'll be wiped out clean. Right? There's, you know, how many? Five, fifteen hundred maybe in Quraysh, two thousand maybe. There are ten thousand Muslims that we outnumber them five to one. And so now the Quraysh are, you know, they're like the weak power. And the Muslims, by the permission of Allah, are the superpower. They're the ones who have the might and the strength. And so Abu Sufyan, he goes out on a reconnaissance mission. Takes a couple of people with him, and they go out during the evening just to see what's going on. Because they don't have like a complete information embargo. No one knows, no news has come to them, no scouts have come to them, no one knows what's going on, how many people have come. But he says to his companions when he sees the fires that the Muslims have lit, their campfires, he says that I've never seen an army like this. The amount of fires that have been lit that show how many people must be here. He said, I've never seen anything like this. 
So Abu Bakr uh, Abbas radiallahu an, he is worried about the situation. Because these obviously, you know, everyone's related. They're all family, they're all relatives, it's all Quraysh. And so Abbas radiallahu an takes the mule of the Prophet and he rides it. To go and see, just to go and see. And he leaves the camp of the Muslims and he's riding. And he comes across Abu Sufyan as he's talking to his friends, his companions about the number of the Muslims. And so Abbas radiallahu an recognizes the voice of Abu Sufyan. And he says to him, Oh Abu Sufyan, right? he tells him, Look, it's me, Abbas. Oh Abu Sufyan, if you don't come to the Prophet and speak to him and resolve this issue, then tomorrow you won't find anyone left. Anyone that opposes us, you have no, no, no chance, no strength, no power. So Abu Sufyan says, And how do I reach the Prophet? How do I get to Muhammad? How do I even get that close? I have between me and him an army. Right? 10,000 Muslims between me and him. So Abbas said, I am riding, this is the mule of the Prophet If you ride with me, no one will stop him, no one will stop the mule because they recognize the mule, and no one will stop me because they recognize me as the uncle of the Prophet So they agree. He agrees. So Abu Sufyan goes into the enemy camp. Right? Because remember, Abu Sufyan, from, he's gone all the way to Medina, to try to resolve this issue. And the, the scholars of history, they say, that he went to renew the pact and to extend it. Right? He, that's why he wanted to go to Medina. He said, O Messenger of Allah, or, or rather, O Muhammad, you know, let's renew the pact, let's reaffirm that we committed to it, and we'll extend it as well. Right? Ten years, forget ten years, we'll, we'll extend it in terms of it, because he's desperate, because he knows what will happen. So now Abu Sufyan agrees. So he rides with the Abbas and they pass by and every time they come across a camp or a campfire of the Muslims, they see the camel, they see Abbas and they let it go. No one questions. Until as they're approaching the camp of the Prophet they come across a campfire and who's sitting there? Umar radiallahu anh. Umar. Amazing. Always Umar. Umar radiallahu anh sees the mule, he sees Abbas, but then he sees that there's someone with Abbas. So he looks closer and he says, this is the enemy of Allah. And Umar, right, and this shows you subhanAllah how intelligent these people were. Umar, in that split second, he realizes what's going on. Instantly knows this is what's going to happen. So he races the mule to the tent of the Prophet. He knows. Doesn't need, oh, you know, like tomorrow he wakes up and figures it out. Instantly he knows this is what they're going to do. So he goes and he races and they enter together more or less. Abbas, Abu Sufyan, Umar, and Umar speaks and he says, O oh, Messenger of Allah, this is the enemy of Allah, let me take off his neck. Doesn't want to give him a chance, doesn't want to let him speak, doesn't want any, any type of peace. So this is the man who's killed so many Muslims, the chief of Quraysh, the leader of Quraysh, so much harm at his hands, doesn't want to give him a chance. And Abbas is trying to speak over him, say, Umar, he, you know, let him speak, he wants to speak, he's come to speak. And Umar is just saying, O oh, Messenger of Allah, give me permission, let me, let me. And he's asking over and over again. And then Abbas becomes angry. And he says, O oh, Umar, you're only saying this because he's our relative. Abu Sufyan is closely related to the Prophet And obviously his, his father-in-law, in the manner of speaking as well. You're only saying this because he's our relative. Were he from your clan and your family, you would never have said this. And that's where we have that amazing statement of Umar radiallahu an, when he says, By Allah, O oh, Abbas, the day that you became Muslim was more beloved to me than if my own father, Al-Khattab, were to have accepted Islam. Because I know that the Prophet ﷺ rejoices more at your Islam than you would have at my, the, the, the Islam of my father. Showing him that it's not about family. 
It's not about like nothing personal. Right? This isn't about that stuff. This is about our love for. Yeah, that's where Umar radiallahu an mentions that statement. So, the Prophet says to to Abbas, "Take Abu Sufyan with you to your tent and let him stay here. Let him sleep the night here, rest, and then come to me in the morning." So they come to the morning in the morning to the Prophet al Abbas and Abu Sufyan, and the Prophet says to him, "Oh, oh, oh, Ab- oh Abu Sufyan, has it not come time for you to worship Allah alone?" After everything you've seen, everything you've been through, all of this, has not the time come for you to acknowledge that only Allah is worthy of worship? And Abu Sufyan doesn't give a straight response. He just says, Oh Muhammad, you're so generous and you're so kind and you're known for your character. And, you know, he's buttering him up, but it doesn't really give him a response. And then the Prophet says to him, Oh Abu Sufyan, don't you know that I am the messenger of Allah? And again, Abu Sufyan gives the same response. You're a good family member. You join the ties of kinship. You're kind, you're generous. You're a person who fulfills his oaths and so on. And he's just praising him. So Abbas says, oh, Abu Sufyan, what are you doing? Right? He's giving you an opportunity. Accept Islam. This is your chance now to become a Muslim. So then Abu Sufyan, he says, okay, I accept Islam. And he becomes a Muslim. And the narration says, and he was truthful in his Islam. He accepted Islam, wanted to become a Muslim. He just wasn't sure, didn't know how to do it, didn't know what the, what the, what the consequences would be. But he accepts Islam. He says, La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah. So then Abbas says, O Messenger of Allah, Abu Sufyan is a proud man. He's the leader of Quraysh. He's afforded honor and he's afforded status and station. So give him something that will make him proud. Help him, give him something in return. So the Prophet says, Whoever enters the house of Abu Sufyan, is given safety. And whoever closes the doors of their homes will be given safety. And whoever enters into the masjid, meaning the Kaaba, will be given safety. And with that, Abu Sufyan returns. And then the Prophet ﷺ, obviously, as we know, he enters into Mecca, and the Prophet, ﷺ, uh, you know, like the rest, as they say, is history, right? And that is the conquest of Mecca and the story of the conquest of Mecca. And this is the story that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is referring to at the beginning of, of this surah when Allah Azza wa Jal refers to إِذَا جَاءَ نَصْرُ اللَّهِ وَالْفَتْحِ When did uh, Abbas uh, accept Abbas radiallahu an accept Islam? There's a difference of opinion amongst the scholars of history. Some of them said that he accepted Islam even before the hijrah. Others said that it was around the time of Battle of Badr, either before it or after it. Right? And there's a narration, but I think that it is a weak narration, Allah knows best. But the Prophet said that if you catch three people in the Battle of Badr, then don't execute them because they've come out of, like they've been forced to come. And he mentioned Abbas from them. And I don't know if that narration is authentic from the top of my head, I can't remember. Um, and others said, no, his Islam was towards the conquest of Mecca or the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. So you have all of those, like, like different opinions. And you have the hadith of, you know, as we mentioned in the story of Abu Lahab, right, in the conquest of, not in, the, in the Battle of Badr, right, of his servant Abu Rafi'ah, when he said that we were living in Mecca, but we were concealing our Islam. Right? And that's an authentic narration. So, but again, there is that difference of opinion. Does that refer to Abu Rafi'ah and Umm al-Fadl? Or does that refer to Abbas? Umm al-Fadl is the wife of Abbas. Or does that refer to Abbas? and Umm al-Fadl? There is a difference of opinion. Um, but no doubt, even before his Islam, Abbas was one of the uncles, like Abu Talib, who was good towards the Prophet ﷺ, and he supported him, and he looked after him, right? And he's the one 
at the time of the Hijrah, when the, when the Ansar come to give the Bay'ah at Aqaba during the days of Hajj, the second pledge of allegiance, and they're giving sanctuary to the Muslims to come to Medina, Abbas is the one who's there with the Prophet ﷺ. And he's the one who says to them that if you can take them and give them sanctuary, then do so. But if you can't take them and you can't give them, it's better that you leave them here. Because if they leave and then you tell them, oh, actually, we can't do it, you have to go back, that's much worse. Better that you leave them where they are. He's the one who makes that statement. And then they say, they reaffirm, no, actually, we will take them and we will give them that, um, you know, that, that sanctuary um, as well. So what do we say about like Abu Sufyan accepting Islam here, but not really wanting to be a Muslim? But then later on, he accepts Islam like like fully and and like embraces it fully. I think these like arguments and discussions are like pretty pointless, to be honest. Number one, because you have no way of knowing, right? What's in someone's heart for any person, let alone like you know Abu Sufyan or anyone else. But the narration seems to say there is, you know, we take things like based upon their, you know, their apparent, you know, what's apparent, right, and what's what you can visibly see or hear or what the situation seems to be. So, you know, I, I don't really like, I think these discussions are like pretty pointless, to be honest. Um, okay, so the final thing that, um, you know, some of the scholars mentioned here um, also is an incident that's related to the conquest of Mecca. Ibn Kathir, rahimahullah, mentions. It's reported that Prophet ﷺ, when he came into Mecca, he went to the house of Ummu Hanit. Ummu Hanit is the daughter of Abu Talib. Right? He went into the house of Ummu Hanit and he prayed eight rak'ahs. He prayed eight rak'ahs. And you know, some of the scholars said that this is um, what they call Salatul Fatih, right? That when you conquer a land, you offer this prayer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, thanking Allah Azza wa Jal for this blessing and so on. And so it's something which the Prophet did. That's an authentic narration. Um, and it's reported that other companions like Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas radiallahu an, many years later when he was the general of the armies, if he would conquer a land, he would also do the same. He would go and he would pray a number of rak'ahs, eight rak'ahs, two by two by two by two. Um, but other scholars said, no, this is Salatul Duha. Right, Salatul Duha. It's the morning time in spring Salatul Duha. And Ummu Han in her narration, radiallahu anha, she says that he played it, played eight rak'ahs, Duha. Right, and the scholars differed here. Is that, does that mean Salatul Duha? Or Duha as in that was the morning, the, the time of day in which he prayed it. Right, and so you have that difference of opinion. But something which Ibn Kathir, rahimahullah, mentions because it is related to uh, the surah as well. And Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. Okay, I think we'll stop there. Uh, and yeah. Wait, wait, does anyone else have a question other than Oasis? Everyone's got, everyone's got their hands up, man. You're just like there, like. Okay. So from now on, the rule is. <laughs> it has to be quiet now. Oasis asks one question, and then everyone else gets their questions, and then if there's no one else, then Oasis gets other questions. Okay. Yeah. Okay, Nav. Probably Surah Fatih. <laughs> or Inna Fatihana Laka Fatihan Mubina. Right. Um, and remember, like this, so this is, you know, a lot of these, uh, other than a few, like, like the surahs that are, you know, like mentioned, like Baqarah and Ali Imran, like explicitly by the Prophet, 
there was an issue of ijtihad, like the companions had different names for them, right? And, and even the scholars after them, they gave them a different... It's only, you know, like in our time or, or like before our time where it's become settled and more or less agreed upon. But even in our time, you have differences, right? Like Surah Ghafir is known as Surah Mu'min, right? And Surah Tawbah is also known as Surah Bara'a. Even in our time, right, you have those differences. If you go to the Pakistani script, they have like certain names that they use for certain surahs as well. So it's not like a, an issue which... You know, which is a, a, bit, a big problem. Yeah, Which book of tafsir would I recommend to you? So, um, in English, like really, the only one that you probably have that's like extensive and, and, and you know, like is like a, a de- fairly detailed is Ibn Kathir, which I think is 10 volumes. Um, Ibn Kathir, uh, printed by Darus Salam. That's the only one that I know of is like, that's the Sakshi been completed. I know that there's a, there's uh, Sa'di as well. That's 10 volumes, right, also. Is that true, right? Yeah, so that's 10 volumes as well, right? Because remember, Tafsir Sa'di in Arabic is like tiny script, like literally tiny script. Um, so anyway, so, yeah, so, but Tafsir Sa'di is, is an abridged Tafsir anyway, even in Arabic, it's a very basic Tafsir. Right? Even though it's, it has some very nice points and it's like it's a nice tafsir, but it's an abridged tafsir. It's a very short, summarized tafsir. Whereas Ibn Kathir is obviously like you know that's like a reference for tafsir. The English though is is a translation of the abridgment of Ibn Kathir. You know, just like make it even more difficult. Right? That's actually not even Ibn Kathir fully. It's an abridgment of Ibn Kathir that was then translated. Right. So, um, so I think that's. On, I know Qurtubi. I think there's a couple of volumes. That's you know, Qurtubi, and I think Jalalain and others as well, and Tabari as well. Yeah. So, um, but I would be surprised, like, if anyone's going to do Qurtubi or Tabari, Tabari, like in Arabic is a mission. You do that in English, it can be like a hundred volumes. So Ibn Kathir is the one that I would that I would recommend. Kaka. Yeah. Is that correct? And there were well, five. I don't remember the exact name, but there was like a handful of them. Yeah, most of them, like when they accepted Islam, like Ikrima and, and others, so they, they, when they accepted Islam, the Prophet let them become Muslim. Yeah. Okay, Jazakum Allah Khair, Barakallah Fikum. Assalamu alaikum.